Well, take your Bibles, if you would, and turn with me to the book of Habakkuk. The book of Habakkuk. If you're visiting this morning, I should tell you that last week we embarked on a a brand new study in this little minor prophet, the book of Habakkuk. While you're turning there, I, I want to read a quote from one of the greatest, if not the greatest, theological minds that has ever walked on American soil. Here's what this gentleman said. From my childhood up, my mind has been full of objections against the doctrine of God's sovereignty. If I told you who uttered those words, it would astound you and it would shock you. So I want to ask, have you ever uttered such a sentence? Have you ever wrestled with the subject of the sovereignty of God? Have you ever pondered the deep purposes of God? Have you ever wondered why God would allow a given event to come to pass? I remember the first time that I went on a teaching trip to the Republic of Belarus. I had a chance to visit with my students and some other professors a place known as the Katyn Massacre. Now, if I asked how many have heard of Auschwitz, I would imagine that 95 to 100% of you would raise your hand. You would know something about Auschwitz. But if I asked you to, to raise your hand, if you knew something about the Katyn Massacre, my suspicion would be many of you have never heard of the Katyn Massacre. This was the area where a series of mass execution of Polish officers took place where intelligentsia was ruthlessly carried out by the Soviet Union, specifically the NKVD. That is the Soviet secret police in the months of April and May of 1940. As you're with me, we're in the midst of World War II. And it is estimated at this site that I had a chance to walk that at least 22,000 people were murdered in the span of two months. They were murdered at Katyn and included among the dead were Polish officers, lawyers, factory workers, landowners, and priests and many other people. If you have been following the news, I'm sure many of you are, you know that there is a has been an uptick. There has been an upsurge in socialism among Americans, especially among the millennials. Have you heard about this resurgence of socialism? It is something that has absolutely astonished me. It bewilders me. Because I I want to tell you, and I want to address this especially to young people, to millennials, to those of you who may be wondering the what the captivation is behind socialism. You need to know that socialism always leads to the fields of Katyn. You say, what do I mean by that? Driven by idealistic utopian philosophy and atheism, socialism always ends in the grave. And you say, wait a minute, not everyone ends in the grave. Well, if you don't end up in the grave in a socialistic worldview, you end up standing above the grave with a gun in your hand. That is to say, socialism never ends well. As I walked with my students that day at the Katyn site, there there was an eerie silence that blanketed the landscape. 
At predictable intervals, a, a bell would clang, gong, gong, that memorialized the dead. And every time, from start to finish, every time I heard the, the toiling of the bell, the hair on my arms would literally stand on end as I would remember the 22,000 innocent people that died in the fields over the course of 60 days. When you visit the site of the Katyn massacre, questions inevitably begin to surface in your mind. If your mind is inquisitive at all, if you're thinking deeply about the events of human history, you begin to ask questions. When you visit Auschwitz, you begin to ask questions. Questions begin to trouble your heart. When you go to Auschwitz and you see the, the thousands upon thousands of shoes piled to the ceiling from people who were sent to those grisly deaths, you ask yourself what God's purpose was in those events. When you think about the events of 9-11, more recent events, you begin to wonder why God in his sovereignty would allow such a horrible thing to take place. You, you wonder about God's purposes. You quiz God's motives. You, you may be tempted to even ask, why, God? You may be tempted to challenge God's sovereignty. Now, if you have ever struggled with the sovereignty of God, you're in good company. You're in good company. You're, you're not the first person who has gone to the mat, as it were, with God. You may be shocked to learn that the quote I read earlier came from the, the pen of America's brightest and most articulate theologian, Jonathan Edwards. From my childhood up, my mind had been full of objections against the doctrine of God's sovereignty. You see, there was a time early on in Edwards' life when the sovereignty of God was a horrible doctrine to behold. But we must remember that the Word of God teaches God's sovereign control over all things. Now, Edwards died in 1758. Move forward with me roughly 200 years. There was another pastor and theologian by the name of A.W. Pink who wrote a book entitled The Sovereignty of God. Some of you have heard me rant and rave about it before. It is numbered among all the books that I've read over the last 30 years in the top five. If you have never read The Sovereignty of God and you're looking for a challenge if you're looking for a piece of encouragement, I would encourage you to, to pick up the sovereignty of God. Last I checked, you could get a copy for free on Kindle. If you don't own a Kindle, you can still uh, get a copy for free and read it on your computer. Listen to what A.W. Pink says about the sovereignty of God. He says, to say that God is sovereign is to declare that God is God. To say that God is sovereign is to declare that he is the almighty, the possessor of all power in heaven and earth, so that none can defeat his counsels, thwart his purpose, or resist his will. To say that God is sovereign is to declare that he is the governor among nations, setting up kingdoms, overthrowing empires, and determining the course of dynasties as pleaseth him best. To say that God is sovereign is to declare that he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. The sovereignty of the God of Scripture is absolute, irresistible, infinite. 
When we say that God is sovereign, we affirm his right to govern the universe, which he has made for his own glory, just as he pleases, close quote. Now, I remember, I, I don't know how many times I've read the book now, many times, but the first time I read the book, all I could think about throughout this book in my early 20s was, God is God, and I am not. God is God, and I am not. Now, Habakkuk was a man who learned this lesson as well. He is a man who learned some, some very important lessons about the sovereign control of God. And I, I truly believe that the, that the lessons that this man learned are lessons that we need to learn as well. I also believe that the questions that he posed are the questions that, that surface in our hearts as well. And so the story of Habakkuk prompts an important question for us today, and that is, how shall we on this day respond to the sovereignty of God? Let me say it another way. When the crops fail, when the children rebel, when the spouse departs, when your health fails, when your life falls apart at the seams, when everything goes south, how shall we respond to the sovereign God of the universe? I want to backtrack for a moment because last week we looked at Habakkuk's first lament. Again, his question, his question is our question as well. How can a holy God allow evil to exist and persist? That is the question we posed last week in the first four verses. Here are some more specific questions. Verse 2, God, why won't you answer my prayer? Have you been there? I pray and pray and pray. Some of you have been praying for months, dare I say years, for an event to take place, and God has still not answered your prayer. Verse 3, Habakkuk prays, why do you tolerate injustice? Verse 4, Habakkuk prays, why, God, do you allow wicked people, at least in his mind, to to go scot-free? Why do you let them off the hook? And so those are some of the questions that this man asks. And last week at the end of the message, I mentioned to you that we would see God's response, and I challenged you to read ahead. It, It brought me great joy and pleasure to hear people say, I read ahead. Wow. Wow, I can't wait for the next Sunday. Here we are. Today we see God's response to Habakkuk's question. And so the title of the message is the divine prerogative. The divine prerogative. In our our passage this morning, that is exactly what Habakkuk learns. He learns that the God of the universe indeed has the divine prerogative. Look with me as you stand to your feet. In Habakkuk 1, beginning of verse 5. And Jessica, you just, you rule. I said, stand your feet. And the rest of you are like, what, what, what? And Jessica, boom, drew her feet with a baby. So good job, Jessica. If you're here visiting and wonder, what's this standing up reading the word? It's because the book we hold in our hands is our highest authority. Amen? Amen. And so we stand out of respect for the authority of God's word. Verse 5. Verse five look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. 
For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Lord, we are eager to see how you responded to these very insightful and passionate questions that Habakkuk asks in verse 1 through 4. Lord, I pray that as even as we read these words this morning, some of them may not make sense at first glance, but I pray that as we read them again, as we study them, as we meditate upon them, that we would see what you were trying to communicate to Habakkuk, and we will see what you desire to communicate to each of us this morning. Lord, I know there are many people are hurting, many people are struggling. Some people have prayers that they have been laying at your feet for years, and they're waiting for an answer. And so, Lord, Lord, I pray that today we would remember that, that you alone have the divine prerogative, that in this narrative that we would see some, some principles, some biblical realities that we can apply to our lives so that we would leave refreshed and encouraged this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I don't want to assume anything this morning, so we would begin by looking at the title of the sermon, the, div- the Divine Prerogative. Now, a prerogative is a right or an exclusive decision. A right or an exclusive decision or privilege. Unfortunately, when we consider the divine prerogative of God... I think you would agree with me that over the years, God's divine prerogative has been slowly eroding in the hearts and the minds of people. You see, the reality is God's divine prerogative has never gone away. It's never eroded. It's never corroded. But in the minds of the people, what happens, even among Christian people, you begin to downplay the sovereignty of God. You begin to downplay the, the, the prerogative of God. You begin to elevate things like human free will. And the next thing you know is that man has become elevated and God has been demoted. And so we need to be very careful not to do that. Man-centeredness, you see, has a death grip on the contemporary mind. Dare I say that man-centeredness has a death grip on the evangelical mind and some evangelical churches. Instead of viewing God as exalted, he is exhausted. Instead of viewing God as omnipotent, he is seen as bending to the will of people. Instead of viewing God as holy, 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 we view God as something lesser. And as a result, God is dishonored by how we view him. 
And so the word of God is clear on this matter. And we will see it in this passage that God alone has the divine prerogative. God makes that crystal clear in his response to Habakkuk. And so this morning I want to take some time to to unpack this prerogative to help you understand it in an easy, uh, easy to understand way. I want to unpack this divine prerogative by doing two things. First, I want to have you look with me at a divine purpose. We'll walk through that divine purpose. And then I want you to see um, some divine lessons. A divine purpose, and then we're going to look at three divine lessons. Before we take a look at the divine purpose, before we uncover what that purpose is, I want to have you, if you would, use your imagination and get into the skin, if you will, of Habakkuk. And in order to do that, review with me back in verse 2. He says, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help? And you will not hear or cry to you violence and you will not save. Why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you look idly at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed. Justice never goes forth for the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. If I were Habakkuk. If I were Habakkuk and I prayed a prayer like that, if I uttered a lament like that to God, guess what? I would expect to receive an answer from God. Would any of you expect an answer? To to pray a prayer like that, Habakkuk is expecting an answer. He is looking for some peace. He's looking for some consolation. He is looking for reassurance from God. He is he is trusting that God will execute vengeance on his enemies. That God will execute vengeance on the unrighteous. And so you can imagine how shocked Habakkuk would be when God revealed his divine purpose. You remember, he wants peace. He wants consolation. He wants the enemies to get theirs, right? And here's what God says. I am raising up the Chaldean army to take Judah into captivity. (sighs) What? Look at it with me. Verse 5. Here's God's answer. Look among the nations, Habakkuk, I'm adding that word, and see, notice, wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. What's God saying there? In the modern vernacular, God's saying, you're never going to believe it. Even if I told you, you'd never believe it. What would that be? Verse 6, for behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth. And so Habakkuk's looking for peace and consolation, reassurance, justice. And what does he get? God says, the Chaldean army is going to march into Judah and take you into captivity. Some background on the Chaldeans, otherwise known as the Babylonians. They're synonymous. This is a, a group of ungodly people. This is an ungodly nation. God refers to them as a ruthless nation. Yet God in his sovereignty said, Habakkuk, here is my answer. I am raising up 
this evil nation to take you and all of Judah into captivity. Last week, I, last week, I referred to a dark season in, in my life, in my family's life, in the, the church that I served at, in that church family's life. It sent two pastors, including me, to the ER with chest pains. This is a season that was filled with uncertainty and discouragement and disillusionment and depression. And I could not, for the life of me, figure out why God would allow this chain of events to inflict his people. I imagine that this is very much how Habakkuk felt when God responded by telling him that he is raising up the Chaldean army. And what I'd like to do is is have you take a look at that army with me just for a few minutes. I want to have you look in your notes. You see this referred to as the portrait of the Chaldean army. What were the Babylonians like? Look at verse 6. God says, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, that, that bitter and hasty nation who marched through the breadth of the earth to, to seize dwellings not their own. First, I want you to see this is a bitter nation. And you recall from the book of Hebrews, whenever bitter surfaces, bitterness surfaces in a person, what does it do? It grows up to cause trouble and defile many. May I say as your pastor that one of the things we need to be very, very, very careful about is that we never grow bitter. Because when you grow bitter, it grows up to cause trouble and defile many. So first and foremost, it, it hurts you. But it not only hurts you, bitter is never, bitterness is never isolated. Bitterness always affects people around you. First, it affects people in your family. Then it affects people in your church family. Then it affects people in your community. Then it affects people who, who are in your place of business. Bitterness is a sin that grows up to cause trouble and defile many. And this is a bitter and hasty nation. Verse 6 also says that they're bandits. They're not only bitter, they're bandits. They are literally pirates parading to plunder the plains of Judah. And that's exactly what God says will take place. Third, look at verse 7. They're brash. He says they're dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Verse 8. They're brutal. This is a mighty military machine. God says they have horses that are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves, ruthless as an eagle hunting its prey. This is a nasty, mean, evil army. Verse 9, he says that they are, are bent on violence. That is, they delight in capturing POWs. They love to capture prisoners of war and to mistreat those prisoners of war. Verse 10, God says they're big-headed. At kings they scoff, at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up the earth and take it. And I want you with me to think about a, a war movie, right? Think about a movie like Braveheart or Saving Private Ryan or The Big Red One or any of those, those classic movies. And think about the marching of the feet, the laughter of men coming in to wreak havoc on Judah and to carry them into captivity. That's exactly what's happening here. They are big-headed. They are rebellious. They mock the authority of kings. They mock the authority of God. These are arrogant Selfish, 
pride-filled men. Verse 10 also knows that they're, they're belligerent. They are idol worshipers. Verse 10 says in the NIV that their strength is their God, little G-O-D. When I read that verse, I, am, I immediately turned my attention to Romans chapter 1, where Paul says to the Roman believers, Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forevermore. These are the kind of individuals, those who reject the creator-creature distinction, those who have traded the truth of God for the lie. Habakkuk, here's my answer. They're coming for you. They're coming for you. They're going to carry you away into captivity. And so Habakkuk, he receives an answer to his prayer. But as you have already surmised, this answer that he receives is light years away from the answer that he expects. I think that each one of us in this sanctuary this morning can relate to Habakkuk because we we pray a given prayer and either we wait for a response or God tells us an answer that isn't satisfying to us. We plead with God for an answer and he responds in a way that just doesn't add up. Built into the fabric now of this narrative, I believe are some very important lessons that I trust will encourage you, will build up your faith, and will help equip you and prepare you for the future. Because in the future, we all have difficult things that we will deal with. And so notice three divine lessons. The first divine lesson is this, is that God works his eternal plan in the context of history. God works his eternal plan in the context of history 100 years, roughly 100 years before Habakkuk. God spoke to Hezekiah, then the king of Judah, through the prophet Isaiah. And here's what he says in Isaiah 39, 6. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. You say, what is that all about? Well, when God comes to Habakkuk, he tells Habakkuk, in about 100 years, this is what's going to happen. This is a prophecy. Judah will be carried away into captivity. The invisible hand of God's providence is, is working behind the scenes, often unbeknownst to us. And the promise of Scripture is this. All his plans are for your good. Do you remember Joseph? Joseph is this man who was left for dead in a big hole by his brothers. They thought the wild animals would eat him, and the brothers went on their merry way, and we come to the end of the story in Genesis chapter 50, and by this time, Joseph, much to their chagrin, wasn't eaten by the animals. Rather, he was elevated to the pinnacle of the government. And there he is serving in the government, and his brothers stand before him. And it's, I I hope you don't see it as being extra biblical or even unbiblical, but what I see when I read Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, is they stand before his brother. I I can just hear it in the text. You ready? Can you imagine? 
This is the guy we left for dead. This is the guy we hate. And now he's the guy that can say. And what does Joseph say to his brothers? He looks them in the eye and says, you meant it for evil. But God meant it for good. You see, behind the scenes, God's providential hand is orchestrating all the details and he's working all things together for your good, for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Now watch as the plan unfolds. Habakkuk 1.5, God says to Habakkuk, look among the nations and see and wonder and be astounded for I am doing a work in your days. It's not the work that Habakkuk anticipated. It's not the work that any of us anticipated. But we do know this, God works his eternal plan in the context of history. Number two, God's ways are infinitely higher or wiser than anything we could ever imagine. God's ways are infinitely wiser than anything we can ever imagine. Turn with me for a moment to Isaiah chapter 55. And this is, this is a verse, and I, I like to encourage you, if, if you don't carry a highlighter, people tease me because I always have a highlighter with me, is take your highlighter and, and highlight this verse, Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9. We'll look at it here in a moment. Because I believe Habakkuk must have been blown away by God's response. Even God said, wonder and be astounded, for I am doing something in your days that you would not believe when you heard about it. And so here's the important lesson we need to learn. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. For my thoughts, God says, are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth... So my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. I would encourage you once again to remember this principle. God is God and you are not. God is God and you are not. You may remember how King Nebuchadnezzar was humbled in Daniel chapter 4. You remember how God sent this, this arrogant, haughty king out to pasture and his, his beard grew long like Tom Hanks in Castaway, only much longer. And his fingernails got long and nasty and ugly and his toenails got dirty and just hideous looking. And he was like a, a beast in the field. Scripture says this. That when his reason returned, that is to say, when his sanity was restored to him, he, he blessed the Most High God. Listen to what he says. For his dominion, speaking of God, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures for generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? I believe that for some of us this morning, the time has come for our reason to be restored. For our sanity to be restored. Where we affirm with Nebuchadnezzar. That God is the blessed, most high God. That his ways are infinitely wiser than anything we could ever imagine. Now, there's a third lesson. And it's a lesson that 
I had to think long and hard about because it's a lesson that is going to lead us to the deep end of the pool. Are you ready to go to the deep end of the pool just for a few minutes? It's an exciting lesson and it's an important lesson. And here it is that God ordains everything that comes to pass. In 1647, the Westminster divines gathered in England to pen what we know today as the Westminster Confession of Faith. And one of the statements from the Westminster Confession of Faith, by the way, this is a Presbyterian doctrine to all my Baptist brothers and sisters. Let me read it for you. It's a wonderful statement. God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his will freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass, semicolon. Why do I insert the semicolon? Because... I heard a story many, many times, Dr. R.C. Sproul, before he went to be with the Savior, his Savior. He told a story of a class he taught at a Presbyterian seminary. This is a, a conservative, evangelical, Presbyterian seminary that he's teaching at. And he read the words that I just read, and he got to semicolon, and he stopped. And he thought to himself, I want to know what kind of hand I've been dealt here. And so we asked this group of seminarians, how many of you would say with the raise of a, raise of, raising of your hand that I believe that God freely and unchangeably ordains whatsoever comes to pass? And he, he was shocked to see that about half the students rose their hand into the air. And then he said, that's interesting. For the rest of you, what's your response? He said, don't you understand that if you don't believe that God freely and unchangeably ordains everything that comes to pass, that by definition, you are an atheist. And he saw shock and chagrin among the student body in this class. And they couldn't believe it. And then he went into, if you've never seen it, you have to see it. He went into what he called his Lieutenant Columbo routine. He imitated Lieutenant Columbo like no one I've ever seen before. He would scratch his head and kind of walk like this. And he said, do you mind if I ask you a personal question? Just a moment ago, I asked how many of you believe that God freely and unchangeably ordains everything comes to pass. And half of you raised your hand. But then I said, how many of you are atheists? And no one raised their hand. Don't you understand that you must, according to Scripture, believe that God is sovereign over every molecule? R.C. went on to say there are no maverick molecules in God's world, in God's cosmos. And so I want to take a minute and break down this statement and explain it in some bite-sized chunks. Here are the statements I want you to, to highlight. Number one, every event that takes place was decreed in eternity in eternity past if an event takes place you know that god decreed it proverbs sixteen thirty three says the the lot is cast into the lap but it's every decision is from the lord proverbs 21 1 the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the lord he turns it wherever he will every event that takes place was decreed in eternity past Next, all of God's decrees are filtered through his sovereign will. Ephesians 1.11 says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works. Thank you. All 
Kyle, not 66%, not 90%, not 99%, and not 99.999%. He works, do we believe scripture? All things according to the counsel of his will. Third, we see in the Westminster Statement, and by the way, for my Baptist brothers and sisters like me, like yours truly, who if cut would bleed Baptist, or any of you that way, that's me. Um, for those of you who are like that and wonder, hey, 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 that's a Presbyterian doctrine, right? So here in 1689, Tom Junkmus is here jumping up and down. In 1689, roughly 40 years after the Westminster Confession of Faith was penned, what do we read in the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith? Just take a guess. Same thing. So this is not a Presbyterian doctrine. It's not a Baptist doctrine. It's it's just a biblical doctrine. We learn this in the confession, that God is not the author of sin. God is not the author of sin. One of my heroes for many, many years, and I saw her when I was just a, a boy, Johnny Erickson Tata, not too long after she had that tragic uh, event occur where she was paralyzed from the neck down. Here's what Johnny says, and I, I can't think of anyone more qualified to utter these words. God allows what he hates to accomplish what he loves. God allows what he hates to accomplish what he loves. And we need to remember that God is is not the author of sin. I also want you to see that God does not force his creatures to act contrary to their desires. Later in the Westminster Confession of Faith, we read this. The free actions of men are also predestined by God. These acts are both free and determined. That is, those who commit these acts do so because they want to. And yet the acts which they are predetermined by God, so Scripture says they must happen. You say, how does that work? Creatures make free decisions. God sovereignly ordains whatever comes to pass. Theologians refer to this as the doctrine of compatibilism. So God's purposes are accomplished, but we do what we choose to do. And so God assures that everything he decrees most certainly comes to pass. Is that not exactly what Habakkuk needs to learn here in verses 5 to 11? As he prays the prayer in verses 1 to 4, that He needs to remember who God is. We need to remember who God is. Habakkuk and you and I need to remember that God is sovereign over all things. And I believe that we should be comforted to know that God is sovereign and that he has ordained everything that comes to pass. Finally, God sovereignly, and I warned you we're in the deep end of the pool, right? So we're going to take it a little bit deeper. And that is that God sovereignly uses the actions of evil people to accomplish his purposes. We see it in verse 6. For I'm raising up the Chaldeans. We see their job description later in the text. That bitter and hasty nation. There's a man by the name of Walter Chantry, Baptist pastor, who says, When great armies assemble and begin to march... I have this crazy imagination. When great armies begin to assemble and march, I hear, is anyone with me? You hear the armies marching. So get that. 
If this was a youth group, I'd get you doing it, right? We're not going to do that. You're much too mature. Chantry says, when the great armies assemble and begin to march, they are under the dominion and direction of God. Now, an image you can see in your mind. It might be hard to think thousands of years ago, but think of this image. Have you seen the North Korean army march? I don't know how they do that. It hurts me ah, when I do that, right? But they're doing this march. Does it kind of give you the shivers? Pat, gives you the shiver. Pat, we're the only ones. I get the willies every time I see it. It's so scary. Listen to what Chantry says. When they assemble, when they march, they are under the control and direction of God. Watch these international events, Chandri says. Know that all of them are directed from God's throne. The former Soviet military, directed by God's throne. The current Russian Federation military, directed from the throne of God. The march of the North Koreans, the march of the Chinese, the march of the Iranians. All of them are directed by the sovereign control of God. Chantry continues, plundering of the nation and deportation of its people would be a means to Judah's spiritual improvement. Did you hear that? That God sovereignly allowed the Babylonian army to carry Judah into captivity for their good. And so God has the divine prerogative. His purpose in this passage is to raise up the Chaldeans to take Judah into captivity. And as a result, result, we learn these lessons. God always works his plan in the context of history. H-I-S-T-O-R-Y. That is his story. Number two, God's ways are infinitely wiser than anything we could ever imagine. And number three, he ordains everything that comes to pass. A few days ago, I write those last words down. I type those last words down and I thought to myself, these are weighty, weighty, difficult lessons. And I understand that these are lessons that as we we go to the deep end of the pool, these are difficult to internalize. But I believe that these lessons are essential in the school of discipleship. These are lessons that I believe we need to, to assimilate, to get into our hearts and our minds, to prepare us for difficult times in the future. If you're struggling, which undoubtedly some of you will struggle, if you're struggling with the sovereignty of God, please remember that a godly man like Jonathan Edwards struggled as well when he was a mere teenager When he was a young adult, this is the guy that said, I struggle with the sovereignty of God. But there came a day when Edwards ultimately surrendered to God's sovereign control and he was able to rest in God's sovereign plan. Here's what he said. He said, there has been a wonderful alteration in my mind with respect to the doctrine of God's sovereignty. The doctrine has very often appeared exceedingly pleasant Bright and sweet. And then he utters these words that I I pray you will never forget. He says, absolute sovereignty is what I love to ascribe to God. And so we rest 
in the infinite wisdom of God, knowing that the purposes of the king can never be thwarted. We stand with Jonathan Edwards, who said, absolute sovereignty is what I love to ascribe to God. My hope and prayer for us today at Christ Fellowship is that we will find it within ourselves to to rest secure in the divine prerogative and to think that any other way would be totally unacceptable. To think that in, in, in any other scheme that God was not in control, that would not only be unacceptable, it would not work for our good or his glory. So let us rest in the divine prerogative. As we prepare next week, to come back, and we're going to see that Habakkuk has a second lament. He, believe it or not, still continues to struggle. So if you're struggling, we're struggling right there with this godly man. Let's pray together. Lord, my suspicion is that all of us have wrestled at some point in our lives with the sovereignty of God. I know I wrestled often as a young adult and sometimes continue to wrestle trying to figure out how a sovereign God can ordain something that doesn't add up in my mind. And so, Lord, may we come to the same conclusion that Edwards came to. That is that absolute sovereignty is what I love to ascribe to God. May we rest in your sovereign control over all things so that when the crops fail, so that when a family falls apart, when a child rebels, when health fails, when things don't add up, that we can remember that you are sovereign over all things and everything that you decree is for our good and ultimately for your glory. So, Lord, would you comfort this, your people, with this great reality in the word of God? Would you remind us that you are sovereign, that you are God, and we are not? So we humbly come to you and ask that you would grant peace and patience, that you would help our hearts and our minds to assimilate these truths in the days ahead. In Jesus' name, amen.